Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Jamil Zaki, who is not only a friend, but a professor of psychology at Stanford and the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He's written a book, The War on Kindness, as well as published a number of articles in popular press, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. Today, we're going to talk about empathy, effective altruism, as well as the tentative title of his new book, The Hopeful Skeptic, and sort of delve into this concept of skepticism and contrast that with cynicism. I hope you enjoy. Jamil, it's great to see you. It's uh, been a little while. It's wonderful to see you too, Jim. Uh, I like your haircut, although you've been keeping it short for a while now. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, it, it reminds me of when I was in the military. <laughs> Well, thank you. I like to keep it high and tight. And Jim, I have to say for listeners who can't see you, your beard, your new beard is majestic. So it's it's just, it's just you, you love to see it. Oh, well, well, that, that that's kind of you. It's, uh, uh, we shall see. My wife likes it, which I didn't think she would. So uh, uh, if she likes it, that's probably all that counts. That's, that's permanent in that case. Yeah, so... Um, I think we've talked a little bit uh, about your previous book, and maybe you can tell us the title. And we'll just riff on, riff on that a little bit, but then start getting into a few other interesting things that you're up to. Absolutely, yeah. My first book came out in 2019, and it's called The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. And... Uh, uh, for some listeners, they may not know uh, the classic definition or the definition perhaps it used for empathy and maybe contrast that with compassion. Uh, and um, just to give people a notion of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, this is a terrific place to start. And Jim, you, of course, are a uh, world expert on compassion as well. So I can give you the definition that folks use in my corner of the world, the world of experimental psychology, and maybe we can contrast that and talk about how that intersects with the definition that is used in contemplative practices, for instance, or even in the medical space. So the way that researchers talk about empathy, in fact, I'm, I'm part of a task force right now of a whole bunch of different psychologists and philosophers um, and neuroscientists to come up with a cohesive definition that we all can apply together. And I would say that that definition in general uh, considers empathy an umbrella term that describes multiple ways that we might connect with somebody else, and in particular with their emotions. So for instance, Jim, if I were to log on to this call and I wasn't feeling, as I am feeling, thrilled to talk with you and upbeat and just, uh, yeah, happy to be here, imagine that instead I logged on and I looked beleaguered, depleted, anguished, that I was uh, maybe even crying. Well, as you saw me break down, a bunch of things might happen in you, right? One, you might start to feel bad yourself vicariously catching my feelings, which psychologists, research psychologists would call emotional empathy. Two, you might say, what the heck is going on with Jamil? You might do this detective work of trying to figure out exactly what I'm feeling and why, which we would call cognitive empathy or mentalizing. And three, and Jim, I know you're a good friend, so you would think, is there anything that I can do to help? I wish that Jamil felt better. What can I do? How can I expend energy to bring him from where he is to where I'd like him to be, which is a better place? And that's what we would call empathic concern. And again, I think that that third piece, that motivational piece, empathic concern, very similar to how a lot of people use the term compassion. But in my corner of the world, again, empathy is the big circle and then within that, there are these three intersecting circles of emotional empathy, cognitive empathy, and empathic concern. So uh, w would you say then that uh, empathic concern is equivalent to 
what most people use in, when they think of the term compassion? I've, I've thought a lot about this, and they're almost indistinguishable if you think about their actual definitions, right? I mean, both are responses to suffering, right? Whereas emotional empathy and cognitive empathy you can have for positive states as right. well, right? I mean, if you feel great, I'm probably going to draft off of that emotion. And if you feel happy, I'm going to think, wow, what's going right with Jim? And how can I get on this train? Yeah, right, <laughs> um, right. But, but empathic concern is a response to suffering, as is compassion. Both empathic concern and compassion to me are a desire, a desire that we feel not for our own well-being, but for the well-being of others. And both empathic concern and compassion drive action more than the other pieces of empathy, right? So if, if you feel really bad and I just start to feel horrible myself, well, I might help you or I might just try to get out of that situation. I might say, actually, Jim, you know, I'm going to... I'm gonna I'm gonna take off now, but maybe call me when you're feeling better because uh, this is not an enjoyable experience for me. C compassion, though, and empathic concern don't allow us that escape hatch. You need to, or what that desire prompts you to do is to go in and try to make a difference for somebody else. Well, and that's interesting because when some people see another's distress, as you just pointed out. They may be uh, repelled and try to escape it because it overwhelms them. And I think they don't feel that they have either the energy or the tool set to deal with it. And it's causing them so much distress that uh, uh, they need to escape from that. And it's interesting because I'm sure you know Mathieu Ricard. Uh, he was asked actually to um, show empathy without compassion. And mm -hmm. obviously, he's a meditator with, I think, over 30,000 hours, similar to you and I. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, he was saying how uh, sort of this empathic concern uh, was extraordinarily painful. And without that action component or being allowed to focus on that, it was overwhelming. And he wanted to uh, escape it because it's, it's so uh, powerful. But I think that brings up uh, another point, uh, and which is um, why um, why do people get empathic distress? Is that for the exact same reason you think, or is it another mechanism? And how does that relate to burnout, perhaps, which of course is a term that all of us are hearing? Yeah, a terrific question. Um, and yeah, I, I think that the Mathieu Ricard story is really instructive because here's somebody who can modulate their mental and emotional state in a way that most people can't. And he actually was able to tap into what you could call pure forms of different uh, empathy, right? Pure forms of emotional empathy, pure forms of compassion. And that pure form of emotional empathy was intolerable for him, even a practiced monk. Uh, and yeah, I think that I would say that empathic distress is what occurs when you, when you encounter somebody who's suffering enormously and you have that unadulterated sharing of their emotion without anything to do about it, right? And it overwhelms you and you feel as though you must escape the situation. The great psychologist Mark Davis, who really has done a lot of work in, in pulling apart these pieces of empathy, finds that folks who are high in that type of emotional empathy, folks who tend to get distressed when somebody else is distressed, they volunteer less. And when they do volunteer, they do so in ways where they don't have direct contact with suffering people. Whereas people who are high in empathic concern actually seek out forms of volunteering where they can make direct contact with folks who are having a lot of trouble. You asked about burnout, and I think here again, this is a really uh, instructive way to pull apart. And again, I think it's really important because a lot of people don't understand, I think, the different types of empathy, and I think that drives them in some really unfortunate directions. So there's work with medical professionals. You probably know about this, Jim, as a physician yourself, but where researchers find that medical students who are high in emotional empathy are more likely to burn out during their time with, with patients, whereas students who are high in empathic concern are less likely to burn out. I, have, I talk a lot with medical professionals, and many of them ask me, you know, do I have to turn down my empathy in order to survive this profession? And I say, well, no, you have to tune your empathy. 
there are some types that will absolutely contribute to burnout, but there are other types, especially compassion or empathic concern, that actually will protect you by keeping you connected to the reason that you're doing what you're doing, being there for other people. Yeah, I think that's you know one of the challenges in my own experience. On the one hand, uh, there's this deep uh, desire to be of service, but they don't have boundaries. And then when you don't have boundaries, you get so engaged in it, you become exhausted, and then you have nothing left to give. And uh, as you point out, the difference between affective and cognitive empathy, on a cognitive level, obviously it's, it's easier to deal with because you're not associating with that deep emotional aspect of it. And, uh, but again, uh, uh, sometimes that's easier said than done, of course. <laughs> of course. As, as I think you know, Jim, uh, our first daughter, our older daughter, Alma, suffered a stroke during her birth. And as, as you also know, as a neurosurgeon, the brain is an incredible, inc incredibly resilient organ and she's thriving now, which we are uh, grateful for every day. But we had the chance, a chance that I wouldn't wish on anybody to spend a lot of time as parents in a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit. And the physicians and nurses there were to us like empathic heroes. They, they were there for our every need, emotional, informational, whatever we needed, they, they were there. And later for my book, I went and shadowed the, the staff there. And I saw the same heroism that I had experienced as a parent, but I also just saw how many of these, especially the nurses, were incredibly burnt out, suffering symptoms of trauma and depression and anxiety. And you think about it, I mean, how could anybody not, right? I mean, you're drinking from this fire hose of human misery. I mean, in, on that unit, uh, this is because it's a tertiary hospital, there are severe cases and, you know, about one infant a week can't be saved. So these are people living in the teeth of tragedy and some of them really succumbing to that as many people could. But I noticed that the folks who were least burnt out were the ones who could care, as you're saying, to have that goodwill, to be there for other people without themselves being pulled in to that kind of maelstrom of emotion. One of the nurses there who was, had been there the longest and hadn't turned over and, and was sort of seemed very hardy, after a difficult patient interaction, she would go to this little break room, no bigger than a walk-in closet, and sit there and just, her, ma her mantra was, this is not my tragedy. So just creating a little bit of space between you and another person can sometimes help focus you on still that deep compassion you have for them without feeling every ounce of their, of their pain. No, no, we've uh, developed uh, programs for first responders, and of course, uh, we've trained a lot of uh, medical students and uh, faculty as well as fellows and residents, but you're absolutely correct. It's uh, also actually feeling as if you have a place to go where you won't be criticized yes. uh, uh, and uh, told you're weak. And uh, this is unfortunately one of the challenges with physicians too. You know, they don't want to appear weak or that uh, they're not carrying their load, and uh, it becomes overwhelming. And also, I think, as you pointed out, having a quiet moment where you reflect on the fact that you're doing the best you can, and it's not in your power to, um, uh, you know, carry the burden of performing miracles. None of us yes. uh, uh, can do that. Well, obviously, uh, we both have, as many others, of course, in fact, all the listeners have uh, dealt with the issue of the pandemic. Uh, is your feeling that that, uh, in addition to sort of separation or not having as much connection, how does that impact feelings of empathy? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because on the one hand, we as a species have had more in common in this decade than we have, at least in my sense, in any other decade of my life, right? I mean, we, I, this is not the same as saying that we all suffered similarly during the pandemic. Of course, people with all sorts of different disadvantages were most 
deeply affected by the pandemic. You and I had the privilege of, uh, of, of well, having enough resources to probably live through the pandemic the way that we wanted to. Not everybody has that. So uh, that's not what I'm trying to say. And yet, I think that there was a, a great sense of shared experience in that we as a planet were undergoing this same catastrophe. So that opens the door to a lot of common experience, to a great sense of empathy if we choose to walk through it. And I think many people did choose to walk through it. And this is evidenced by the fact that, well, there's this great global survey called the World Happiness Report that has been collecting data on acts of kindness around the world for many years. And the, the finding, which is counterintuitive for a lot of people, is that during the pandemic 2020, 2021, and 2022, there was a massive increase in volunteering, donations to charity, and helping strangers compared to pre-pandemic years. Most people who I ask, by the way, expect that it's the exact opposite. They tell me that uh, the pandemic made us less kind. So I, I think that there was a, a big door to walk through where we could take that shared experience of the pandemic and create a sense of global uh, community, I suppose. Of course, many people did not walk through that door. It was also a time of enormous stress and division. And I think many pre-existing fissures and splits in our culture, unfortunately, made their way into our responses to the pandemic, such that people found ways to take this disaster that could have bonded us and, uh, and, and, and instead used it to break people apart. No, and that's really unfortunate. Uh, uh, and then it becomes either an ego-driven or power-driven yes. exercise, and sadly, to manipulate people and take them from uh, sort of their high aspirations to be their best selves down to being base and insensitive and cruel uh, oftentimes. How would you contrast that to the feelings when 9-11 happened? Really interesting question. I think that 9-11 uh, was a disaster that was different in at least three ways. One, it was a global disaster in that it affected people around the world, but it was primarily a disaster in the United States, right? I mean, it was an attack of one group on one country. Two, it happened in a matter of hours instead of a matter of years, right? So it was an acute disaster rather than a chronic disaster. Um, and, and, and third, it, was, it existed before the creation of social media, which I think has splintered reality in a way that is so profound and troubling. So what happened? I mean, so somebody who writes a lot about 9-11 and its effects on empathy and kindness is Rebecca Solnit, San Francisco's own Rebecca Solnit. She has a book called um, A Paradise Built in Hell that is one of my favorite books. I, I think it's the book I've recommended most during the pandemic because she demonstrates how disasters, by ripping away our comfortable routines, also take away, in many cases, the, the false distinction between self and other, the sense that we are truly fundamentally separate from one another. Because when you're going through a disaster, you have a lot in common, right? I mean, first class and coach on a, uh, on, a, on a plane that's going down have more in common than they do if things are going well. And so during 9-11, you saw massive increases in volunteering. There were so many blood donors that hospitals had to stop accepting donations. You know, people from around the country poured into New York to just help anybody they could. And my friends who lived in New York at the time said that there was a sense of solidarity with strangers that they've never felt before or since. And it's not, you know, here we're talking about a story, but there's also work on this. The British psychologist John Drury has a lot of work on how during disasters, people feel a lot more, they report a lot more overlap between themselves and other people who are going through it, whether it's their fellow city dwellers or countrymen, what have you. John will show them Venn diagrams and he'll say, here's you, you're a circle, and then your group is a circle. Show us how much you and your group overlap. And during disasters, people feel a great sense of overlap between themselves and others. So what do you think, though, and I sometimes use this analogy, you'll have, as an example, the Dalai Lama come and visit and give a talk and 
for a period of time, everyone's inspired and say, I'm going to be helpful and I'm going to be compassionate and I'm going to be of service. And then somewhere between 24, 48, 72 hours, uh, it dissipates and now it's back to their routine. And I think ultimately we saw this with the 9-11 response. And, you know, how do you keep that sense of empathy uh, or compassion alive uh, during uh, times uh, that perhaps you're not struggling, but obviously we know many other people are suffering. suffering. I, I love that question. And I think it actually gets to the heart, not just of why empathy is so fraught, but why emotions are so fraught as, as drivers of our behavior. You know, of course, about Paul Bloom, who writes, uh, who wrote a book called Against Empathy. And he makes a contention that I think is related to your question. He would say, yeah, empathy can powerfully drive us to do kind things for people, but it's an emotion. And emotions last on the order of seconds, minutes, maybe hours. But the whole point of an emotion is that it's a response to something. It's a finite, acute response. So there's no way for an emotion to be the guide of sustainable moral or pro-social behavior, right? Sustainable kindness and goodness, if you will. And to that, I would say, I, I agree I, in some ways. I think that emotions are fleeting and we can't count on ourselves to feel strong empathy. It, let, let's say there's a disaster, right? Like one that I remember vividly is the earthquake in Haiti. And I think it was 2011 that claimed, I think over 100,000 lives. It was just horrible. and there was this outpouring of support for Haiti that then dwindled very quickly, even though Haitian people were very much in need for years after that disaster. And so what I often do, and this is just a life hack, Jim, that I use myself, but I offer it to your listeners as well, and I'd love your thoughts on it too, is when I feel a strong amount of empathy for somebody or for a group of people, I ask myself, is there some way for me to take this emotion that I'm feeling in the moment and systematize it? Can I turn it into a habit? And there's two ways to do that. One is can I find some time in my day or in my week to read more, learn more, and reactivate that emotion? Or two, is there just an action that I can take now that will, uh, that will, that will support that emotion even when it's not there? So for instance, uh, you could make a recurring donation, a sm right? If, if there's a story in the news that ar arouses empathy in you, you could make a small recurring donation to people in that region of the world, for instance. And that way, even if a month from now you're not feeling empathy, you still help, right? You've used that moment of emotion and created something sustainable for those people. Or again, you can make sure to tap into that emotion on a regular basis. I'm curious as to what you think about this and how you translate your empathy into sustainable action. Well, I, I think it's hard, as you point out. I, I think, of course, the challenge, if you make an ongoing donation, it's sort of something you have to cognitively reflect on. <laughs> Go, okay, I'm doing my part. <laughs> which, is, which is fine. You know, the challenge for me is, as an example, you mentioned Haiti, but... You know, you look at, uh, you know, the Sudan, South Sudan. Then you look at Yemen. Then yes. you look at Syria. Then you go to Lebanon. <laughs> and it's just, you know, disaster after disaster, overlapping after disaster. And unfortunately, the nature of the news cycle, uh, you know, there's one tragedy on. You go, oh, my God, that's horrible. Then there's another. And uh, then I think you also become overwhelmed because you're going, well, what do I do and what's my responsibility? And then you can take it from sort of the macro level down to the micro level. Okay, well, you know, uh, two miles away from me, there are homeless people who are hungry. Right. Right. I'm going to focus on that because it's in my neighborhood. It's in the backyard. I'm reminded of it. And it's what I can do in a controlled sense without becoming overwhelmed versus saying, oh, my God, okay, there's, I'm going to try to find a charity in Yemen. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one in Sudan. And I think that's the other aspect is that what I think would be wonderful, and uh, uh, I've talked about this a little bit, is to have a platform that lists all the nonprofits, NGOs, charities that is systemized, 
so that you can find something that resonates with you which allows you to donate or be involved at a local or national or international level. Plus also it would curate sort of the ongoing disasters in the world and, and uh, give people an opportunity to engage in, in some way with those. And I think by doing that, it makes it much easier for the average person to be engaged with something where they can sit there and say, okay, yeah, this exists, this is my interest, I wanna do this, versus all of us searching around after we hear a news story uh, you know, to figure out what's best to do. That being said, specifically in terms of maintaining your compassion, you know, I find sometimes, and uh, I'm not sure if this is good or bad, but I am um, a affective, uh, am <laughs> affectively empathic, not always as cognitively empathic. And so, you know, on some level, you know, I'm sort of hurting all the time going, oh, I want to do this. Can I help with this? And uh, obviously that's not uh, healthy necessarily either uh, because, you know, when you repeatedly chase after something and you're not successful, that causes uh, distress in and of itself. You know, and I think that this is something that, that a lot of us experience, especially now that we are experiencing global events directly through the internet. You, you know, uh, uh, there's this stereotype that I hear a lot um, that, honestly has gotten pretty annoying to me. I'll, I'll speak about empathy to some group of people and they'll tell, and you know, you, these are usually people of my generation or, or older, and they'll say, you know who has no empathy? Gen Z. You know, it's basically a kids these days argument. They're just so caught up in their TikToking and their, you know, Instagramming and they just are very self-focused and, and, and they don't care about other people. And something that I notice about the folks saying that is that they don't interact with many people from Gen, from Gen Z. But I do, you know, I'm a college professor and my experience is the exact opposite. I don't think that young people are less empathic than generations before them. In fact, I think that they have more access to global suffering than any generation who has come before. I mean, when I was 18, Basically, Framingham, Massachusetts was my entire world. I, I cared a little bit, but not much about things happening outside my hometown because I didn't know much about them. The 18-year-olds who I teach are inundated with all of these horrible stories of suffering around the world, and they feel helpless to, to do anything about it. And I think that it's not just the emotion, but the helplessness that really turns into that kind of poisonous cocktail of, uh, of, of burnout. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I think that's exactly right. And this is why um, uh, studies show that if a charity is sort of doing their marketing and they show a picture of thousands of people suffering, uh, the likelihood of connecting with a donor uh, in terms of giving is limited, while if it shows a single child, yes. you can relate to that and then... Uh, feel as if you're helping someone versus the uh, uh, unnamed masses. Yes, this is known as the identif identifiable victim effect, uh, first written about, I think, by Paul Slovic. Uh, but yeah, it's a huge problem. And, you know, I, and I, I, I really love that we're going in this direction because I think a lot of people wonder, how can I do the most good in the world? And what role does empathy play in that? And so one answer is, and I think it's getting a little, I think you're giving a really nuanced answer. I'd say that in some quarters, there's almost two poles here. One is you should use emotion as a guide and give to whatever you feel. And, and that leads us to give to whoever is most visible to us, to identifiable victims, to people who look like us, to people who are close to us. Um, the, on the other extreme is what's known as effective altruism, the idea that actually you should remove all emotion from the equation and almost do an algorithmic style of giving where you ask yourself, what is the most good I can do per dollar? And I think right now that either entails um, uh, donating money to, uh, to, for, for bed nets to prevent the spread of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa 
or if you're in some quarters of effective altruism, funding AI research to stop ChatGPT from destroying the, the, all of us. <laughs> and, right. and, and that's fine and good as a perspective, but it turns out that the psychological data point in a different direction, which is that when you present people with, the, with information about the effectiveness of a charity, it's one of the least useful things you can do. I mean, the people are just not moved to donate by effectiveness information. So as much as you can argue that that's the quote unquote optimal way to give, it's not something that actually drives human beings. So if we're trying to get human beings to do good things, removing emotion from the equation is a, is a fool's errand. There is a middle road though, and, and I think it's related, Jim, to the smart idea that you had, and it's what's, I wanna shout it out, it's called the Giving Multiplier. It was created by uh, Lucius Caviola and Josh Green at Harvard. And the idea is that, and again, I think that you might've <laughs> just independently and spontaneously come up with this idea, but the thought is find something that you care about and a, a theme that you care about, something that you feel emotion about, and they'll show you effective charities in that space. So you're combining your emotion with the best information available about how to do the most good. And that seems to actually drive people to give and to give in ways that are most effective. I'm sure you've heard of uh, the criticism of effective altruism and uh, William McCaskill's uh, uh, statements. And uh, you know, one of the challenges I've had with it uh, is of course this is very attractive to the ultra wealthy class yes in that they're quote unquote trying to be most fair you know my argument sometimes is you know uh uh how does this uh and the other statement that's often made is well it needs to be sustainable well how is feeding children <laughs> a sustainable <laughs> or who are the children you feed uh, as an example if we use this uh, contrast between you have a group of X number of people in India, you know that by the nature of that culture, uh, and for whatever reason, that if you uh, contribute uh, to their village, this will lead to children uh, motivated to get an education, and uh, many of those kids will you know, prosper beyond measure. Then you go to Africa, and you sit there and say, you know, billions of dollars have been put into this, uh, you know, most of it's uh, not going anywhere. It hasn't really statistically improved a lot of these people. Uh, well, I'm going to ignore Africa, and I'm going to make the bet on India. And mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, people would find that a very cruel statement because essentially you're making a bet on the worthiness of people's lives versus uh, addressing the problem uh, in a different way of looking at it and saying, well, this is because there's no infrastructure or X, Y, or Z, or there's constant war, and the people in India, well, it's not the same type of situation. Therefore, they're more likely to benefit. But is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's whether it's fair or unfair, it's a, a very difficult statement to make, and it almost feels like you're playing God a little bit when you when you try to make those determinations. I think that, you know, the effective altruism movement is an Oxford and sort of Bay Area movement first. And I think it has, uh, well, you know, we both work and live in, in, in or near the Silicon Valley. And there's this great enthusiasm for optimization. We all want to optimize our diets and our exercise routines and our sleep and our minds. And I think that in some cases, that's great. And in other cases, I would say it's led to pretty lazy thinking, including about thinking. There's this assumption that, well, uh, emotions are irrational and, and silly, and the best way to make decisions is to just reason everything out as though we were you know, supercomputers uh, instead of animals. Uh, and I think that the what I would call fetishizing of pure reason is old and interesting and often really clearly misguided because of course reasoning itself is motivated by the conclusions that we want to arrive at right i mean that's what confirmation bias is that's why when you ask people to reason out you know what the best baseball team is they somehow through pure <laughs> logic arrive at their own hometown team and you know one 
real alarm bell for me with effective altruism, which I respect as a philosophy in many ways, um, but which I don't think I swallow whole, so to speak. One alarm bell for me came when effective altruists in a very serious Talmudic way calculated what the most effective thing you could do with your money is. And one of the most effective things that you could do, they determined, was donate to effective altruism organizations. <laughs> There's no confirmational bias there at all. Is there? Right. I mean, maybe they're right, but it certainly when somebody uses their best logic and arrives at the conclusion that that they are the most <laughs> worthy group on earth, um, that that to me suggests that maybe pure reason isn't as pure as uh, as people want it to be. Well, and I, I, I the other argument I have is you have. In some ways, it's a very egotistical exercise related to what you've just said, which is I'm super intelligent, uh, much more so than the average person. Therefore, I know what's best, and my reasoning is the correct one. And it gets back to this thing, which, yes, on an intellectual level, that seems appropriate, but on a actual level, who decides? And as an example, I saw a billionaire talking about this. And what's funny is, from my perspective, if somebody extraordinarily wealthy wants to give money, then they should get, a, in whatever area it is, they should create a team of people independent of them that has nothing to do with them, that does not benefit in any way. Let those people decide and not even tell them where the money goes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but of course you never see this because if the extraordinarily wealthy person doesn't like it for whatever reason they says well I'm not giving the money <laughs> I mean there is there is in our culture a great conflation of wealth with wisdom right the idea that if a person made a bunch of money irrespective of how they made it they must know the best way to use it including the best way to help other people um, but of course you know being part of a tech company or being, you know, uh, the son of an oil baron doesn't actually give you moral clairvoyance. It, you're, you're still stuck being a human being like the rest of us. And yet, you know, this sort of idea of, well, I think Anand Gerardus covers this well in Winners it's Take true. All. But, uh, you know, the idea of being really wealthy, meaning that you should have discretion instead of, for instance, doing something mundane, like paying taxes, uh, you should instead uh, divert your funds into a, into a charitable organization that you then are able to use towards your pet interests. You know, it, I, it strikes me as maybe not the best way to do good in the world. No, no, I, I think that's correct. And it, again, it just points out, though, that, uh, and I'm sure you've been to similar types of conferences where you see someone who made money in some aspect of tech, uh, again, pontificating about uh, uh, effective altruism or <laughs> a topic of which they actually have little depth, except they think they know. And maybe in some ways this is a manifestation of the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, certainly, it certainly could be. <laughs> uh, to switch over, uh, uh, you know, I... Uh, uh, I saw your Facebook post. You're asking for the title of your new book, and what did you what did you come up with? Was it uh, op, uh, 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 optimistic skepticism? Was that it? Well, the 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 philosophy that I'm trying to direct people towards is what I would call hopeful skepticism, um, and I, maybe I can I can back up a little bit and and talk about the premise of the new project that I'm working on. Sure. Um, so. It, it's, it's, uh, and we can use this example that we were talking about earlier about the pandemic, right? That that people around the world increased their levels of kindness during the pandemic by the best available data that we have, and yet I, when I surveyed a thousand Americans and I asked them, do you think that during the pandemic people became kinder, less kind, or did they stay equally kind? Two thirds of people reported that humanity as a whole had become less kind. In other words, they weren't randomly wrong. They were more, they were wronger than you would be if you were just throwing darts at, 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 a, at a board, right, blindfolded. And, and I think that this gets at, to me, a huge, interesting and 
troubling aspect of the way that we think and the way that we've been thinking lately more than ever, which is that irrespective of the vast amounts of good that people do, we tend to underestimate each other. We tend to focus on the harm that people do. We tend to imagine that folks are less kind, less trustworthy, more selfish than they really are, which we could call cynicism. And, and cynical thinking has been on the rise for at least 50 years in the United States, and it's, at a, it's reached a high watermark around the world as well. And so the new book that I'm working on explores what cynicism is, what it's doing to us, and it offers an alternative. And hopeful skepticism is, is that alternative. So let's, we can pull apart those two words. The first is skepticism, right? Some people think of skepticism and cynicism as the same thing, but they're not at all. Cynicism is the assumption that people are bad you know, at their core, however you want to talk about it, selfish, conniving, uh, dishonest. Skepticism is openness to data, right? It's, it's, it's a scientific mindset where you actually don't assume anything about people and you observe them instead. And the hopeful piece here is to understand that our default in focusing on people's worse is probably uh, miscalibrated in a particular direction. So if we want to be more accurate about people, we might want to try to be aware of that bias and move ourselves to at least being more open than we typically are to all the good that people do. Well, I think part of it is evolutionary, where people are suspicious and are naturally looking for the actions that put them at risk and then translates that into how they see the world. You know, I think the other interesting aspect, which I think you're getting at, is I'm sure you're familiar with the book uh, by um, uh, Peter Singer, The Better Angels of Our Nature why violence has declined. And I think that because of the nature of media, there's this constant focus on the negative because that's what sells newspapers or has people uh, tune in. But the reality is, if you really look at it, it's actually the opposite, but people become cynical because they feel overwhelmed by it and aren't seeing the other side of uh, the goodness of humanity. Absolutely. No, and I think that you know, Pinker makes this uh, powerful historical argument in Better Angels and in his follow-up book, Enlightenment Now, which was not just about violence, but sort of, hey, you know, on a, on a timeline of millennia, we're less violent, but we're also living longer. We have better lives in virtually any way you can measure. And Steve says that when you look at that time horizon, when you look over thousands of years, um, you basically owe the universe a debt of cosmic gratitude for living in 2023 as opposed to 1800 or 10,000 BC or 50,000 BC. And I certainly share that gratitude. I'm happy to be alive. I think now is probably for many people the best time to be alive. But I would say with all due respect to Steve, um, I think that it's also very understandable if people don't feel a cosmic sense of gratitude. Because yes, over thousands of years, things have been improving. But I think it's also fair to say that over dozens of years, things have been getting worse in some demonstrable ways. The level of wealth inequality around the world has uh, skyrocketed. The amount of uh, autocracy in the Western world is increasing and democracy is eroding in really clear ways. And that's not to speak of the climate crisis, which is, of course, terrifying in a brand new way. So the way that I approach this is to say that cynicism is a perfectly natural response to a world facing real crisis combined, Jim, as you're accurately depicting, with evolutionary mechanisms for self-protection, where we focus on the dangers in our environment more than the good things because focusing on those dangers keeps us safe. So you put those together and it makes perfect sense that people would feel hopeless, that they would feel cynical. But the second part of my argument is that, well, that's not very helpful to us in terms of our health, our relationships, our communities, and social progress. And then the third point is, it's often quite inaccurate. We might be right that wealth inequality is increasing, but we might be very wrong about how other people feel about that. 
I'll give you one example from the climate crisis. Uh, Greg Sparkman, who was at Stanford and now is a professor at Boston College, surveyed thousands of Americans and he said, how much would you support policies that, uh, that are kind of consistent with the Green New Deal, it's sort of more aggressive carbon taxes, investments in renewable energy and so forth? And how much, and what percentage of, of Americans do you think support it? The actual number is two thirds. Two thirds of Americans want aggressive climate policy. But the average American thinks that only one third of Americans want that. Do you see, I mean, we basically have got ourselves wrong by half. <laughs> and, right. and being wrong in that way demotivates people from acting. Greg found that when people underestimated how many of their fellow Americans support climate action, they felt deflated. They didn't feel like there was any point to doing anything about it. So when we don't see each other for who we really are, when we assume the worst about each other, we ironically are less likely to try to build a world that actually taps into those better angels of our nature. Well, I think, you know, in some ways, you have to have the ability to pull back and look at the situation objectively, not be driven by uh, sometimes emotions. And this is sort of this idea of metacognition. We're mm -hmm. able to <laughs> look over things and not sort of get lost in your own little uh, uh, isolated uh, world sometimes. You know, I've often used the term that I'm a, um, well, let's see, dispositional optimist, hmm. which is in some ways probably <laughs> similar to a hopeful skeptic because, uh, and this actually comes from uh, uh, work, uh, this term with uh, um, prisoner of, prisoners of wars. And there's a particular story of a fellow in Vietnam who was in prison for many years. And he said, I, I, I couldn't get lost on putting a date on my leaving prison, but I could switch that into a dispositional optimism that at some point this will end. And actually looking at it from that framework uh, was very helpful for him and actually a, a number of people. Yeah, I, I love that. And you know, the way that psychologists think of it is that optimism and hope are related to one another, but distinct. Optimism is the belief that the future will turn out well in some way. Hope actually is not thought of as the belief that things will turn out well. It's the belief that they could turn out well, that there is possibility. Uh, and, and I think that one one distinction that, that well, Rebecca Solnit makes that Vaclav Havel, the, the one-time one president of Czechoslovakia and before that a political prisoner, that they make is that, is that optimism can, I think it's great to be a dispositional optimist. And I don't think this is true of you, Jim, just knowing you, but there is a sense in which if you are very optimistic, you could become complacent. You could decide, well, things are gonna be fine. It doesn't matter. I, I, I don't need to do anything because they'll kind of fix themselves. Pessimism or cynicism, right? The belief that the future will be bad or that people are bad also makes us feel like we don't need to do anything because it won't make any difference anyways. Hope is this sense of, I would say, a, 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 a poignant uncertainty that the future is unwritten and that we don't know, that things could get much worse or they could get better and that we have some hand to play in that. Well, I no, I think that's a, a good distinction. And uh, um, I think we've sort of run the gamut of uh, emotions and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of perspectives of not only on empathy, but also on um, sort of how to look at the future, ourselves in it, and uh, ways you can respond to that. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any last profound, deep words you would like to share uh, with the audience? <laughs> uh, I think I would. I would. I would stay on on this message. I, I think that, uh, and it's something that 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 you brought up as well. That oftentimes we sit in great comfort with our assumptions, even if those assumptions are really painful and negative, we still feel comforted by them, right? So if we are sure that people are terrible, 
well, at least we're sure of something, right? And and that that in and of itself can be like a like a warm blanket. And I really think one of the one of the experiences I've had while working on this new book is just realizing how cynical I often am without realizing it and actually challenging myself to collect my own data, to be a social scientist, you know, to step out into the world and see and really try to observe what people do more carefully and then create situations where you can almost run your own experiment. Right? If you think that people are selfish, give them an opportunity to be kind and see what they do. The evidence, and my own experience as well, suggests that when we do that more scientific thinking, we can be pleasantly surprised in all sorts of ways and then use that renewed, hopefully, faith in each other to chart a path forward. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's very true. And I think having faith in each other uh, as your starting point is a much better approach than uh, having suspicion towards everyone. So, well, on that note, Jamil, thank you for being with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always great to uh, connect, and I look forward to more interactions uh, in the hopefully not too distant future. A uh, question, when, uh, <laughs> having just finished a book myself, uh, <laughs> All the Pain and Suffering, which you're quite familiar with, uh, uh, w when do you anticipate the book will be published? It's, uh, we're a long way off. It's uh, tentative publication date is September 3rd, 2024. So look out for it uh, in about 15 months. <laughs> <laughs> and and is that the final title? Uh, we don't know. I, I'm, I'm working on the title, so if, if your listeners have thoughts, I'm, I'm, I'm totally open. The current title is The Hopeful Skeptic, but um, alternative titles include We're Better Than This or uh, Better Than We Think, uh, which are maybe more declarative and forceful. How, how about Skeptically Hopeful? That's, that's, <laughs> that's good, too. <laughs> Skeptically Yours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well listen, it's a, it's a yes. total pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, and it's, it's always really fun talking with you. Great. And I'll look forward to, again, us uh, meeting again somewhere because at least there are a number of areas where our interests uh, overlap. So thanks again. Great. Thank you. Take care. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm -hmm.